This morning's Old Testament reading is found in Genesis chapter 9, verses 12 to 17. And God said, I'm giving you a sign as evidence of my eternal covenant with you and all living creatures. I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It's the sign of my permanent promise to you and to all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will be seen in the clouds. And I will remember my covenant with you and with everything that lives. Never again will there be a flood that will destroy all life. When I see the rainbow in the clouds, I will remember the eternal covenant between God and every living creature on earth. Then God said to Noah, Yes, this is the sign of my covenant with all the creatures of the earth. Page 685 in the, Old, in the New Testament. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. What are the indispensable features of Christian community is the communion. It is impossible to understand Christianity. It is impossible to realize the benefits of Christian communion and community without an understanding of this. And the text we just read in Mark says, this is the new covenant in my blood. These are bizarre words in today's world. And in this series that I've embarked in, I'm hoping that those of you who aren't as familiar with the Bible as others will hear these stories and these words and begin to read them and take on the challenge of learning for yourself all of the sorts of pieces that contribute to a greater understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, I'm profoundly concerned that in a world, the world in which we live in, that biblical literacy is dropping. Uh, Bunny mentioned in Family Matters, turning your cell phones off and so forth. We've gotten very fluent at texting. Waste of time, by the way, in many ways, because you can, although not if you want to communicate with a teenage boy. You can leave answering message after answering message for a teenage boy and solve the problem in three words of text. They'll get right back to you on text, but uh, answering machine, no. So it's not a total waste, but everything has its place. What I'm trying to say is in, in, a, in the world in which we live, we're fluent with technologies, cell phones, computers, and so forth. We can find information quickly and readily, type in a keyword on a Google search. We're not required to memorize vast amounts of data or poetry or other information. Indeed, poetry and literature aren't introduced until relatively late in the liberal arts education process. We don't do a lot of reading of newspapers or any of those kinds of pieces. We tend to get digestible bits from our Yahoo pages, from our televisions, from our radios. We've become a culture that's expected to keep up with an awful lot of information an awful lot of the time, and we have not had the opportunity, we've kind of forfeited the opportunity. Our educational focus has shifted away from a classic learning where we know the epic myths, we know the great structures of society and history, we know about the ancients and their belief systems. We've left that kind of education in favor of 
uh, an education that focuses on economics and job preparedness. And so in this kind of world, I'm not blaming you when I talk about the drop in literacy or the drop in biblical literacy. It's a function of the world in which we live, a world which we are called in part, I must say, to reject. Because if we're to understand the gospel, we've got to understand the Bible. And to understand the Bible, we've got to read and we've got to know stories, stories so many don't know. So that's my plea. This comes from a a pastoral heart. I'm hoping that you're not feeling beat up. I'm hoping you're encouraged to go back to the stories that I I cite today and read with understanding. Two weeks ago, I talked talked about the Bible as one big story. How many of you were here two weeks ago? Some of you were here. All of the sermons that I give, unless there's some sort of technical failure end up on our website. They are electronically recorded and they are transferred to our website and you can download those or listen to those on the webpage. And for those of you who don't know as much about the Bible as you would like or are kind of catching up or less than familiar, you may want to go back and listen to that sermon from two weeks ago. You may want to listen to a couple of these a couple of times just to, to kind of get your bearing. Today I want to talk about covenant stories because they occupy an important place in the Bible story as a whole. What I want you to hear more than anything else that I say today is what I say right now. Covenant is about God reaching out to humankind. And that is really significant. Because what it communicates is that we're not dealing with a God who's aloof and out there. We're not dealing with a God who's impersonal and doesn't care about his people or people in general. We're not dealing with a God who's simply set everything in motion and then let be what will be. We're not dealing with a God who doesn't know how to negotiate or make deals or promises for that matter. We're dealing with a God who's personal who reaches to individuals at key moments in the Bible story, making promises to them that become very critical, entering into covenantal relationships with them that speak to the desire of God to save us all and the mystery and miracle that he can save any of us at all. Let me be clear about that. When humankind was created, the biblical story teaches that they were without sin, without knowledge of evil. That they lived in an Edenic home, a paradise, if you will, in which the ecology of the planet was very different than what we know today. Their purpose was to dress the garden in which they lived, to take care of what surrounded them and to live in harmony with that environment and to be in daily communion with God. What we find by the time, this is creation is Genesis 1 and 2, what we find by the time we get to Genesis 3 is a deceiver present in this garden, in a tree that God has warned them not to go near, 
speaks to them these words, not only will they not die if they eat of the fruit of the tree, but their eyes will become opened and they will become like God, knowing good and evil. Consciousness raised to a new level. An intellectual opportunity for growth. An experience unparalleled to be like God and a lie. And in not trusting the God who communed with them daily. In not trusting the God who created them. In believing the lie and in disobeying the word of caution by going near to the tree. By being willing listeners. By being willing participants in an act of betrayal. a new level of self-consciousness was raised. We became creatures of shame for the very first time. Aware of ourselves in a self-consciousness that was unprecedented. And we alienated ourselves from the God of life. It doesn't sound like such an awful thing eating an apple or whatever the fruit may have been. I personally think it had to have been something like a persimmon or a quince. Apple a day keeps the doctor away after all. How could it? No, anyway. Whatever the fruit was that they ate, we don't know. Whatever the fruit was that they ate, that wasn't the point. It isn't the trivial things that, that kill us in the end. It isn't what type of fruit or eating the fruit... It's that they went to the tree. It's that they listened to a lie. It's that they allowed that insidious bit of information to persuade them that a God who had been gracious and good, who had been in communion and community with them, was desiring anything but good for them. It was the insidious piece of self-aggrandizement and, oh, don't we have egos. Would that our ego could soar to unparalleled proportion. To be like God. To know everything. To know good and evil. They ate. And everything changed. And in that chapter and in that moment, God makes a promise even then as he confronts them in their nakedness, in their new self-awareness. He says, I will crush the serpent's head and it will bruise the heel of the one I send. Even in that moment, a promise from a gracious God who reaches to us. And when we don't know the story of the creation and we don't know the story of the fall, we have no idea what this Jesus represents, who he really is because we don't have the story in our minds to understand Jesus as one who takes the place of the Adam who fell. He's the Adam who never falls. We don't have the tools to see Jesus 
as the fulfillment of a promise God made to crush the serpent's head. Jesus was victorious over sin. He was victorious over death. He's ascended to the Father and sits at the right hand of God. He is the one who will make final restoration. That's the scope of the story we're talking about. And the covenant is that God is going to win. That's the covenant promise. Genesis 3. So in this tragic moment, we have a deeper understanding of who we are as beings and what God has promised and what he's doing. Even in this moment, he sets up a system to remind us of the consequence of wanting to be more than we were created to be, of allowing our egos to outstrip our realities, of seeking aggrandizement and power and knowledge that don't belong to us, of disbelieving the one who's given us everything, of doubting the goodness and kindness of the one who made it all perfect to begin with. A lamb is slaughtered, and clothing is made, and it's a metaphor, just like everything else, for the grace that covers our shame. God looking forward to the lamb that would be slain once for all, not for the sin of an individual, but for the sin of a world. This is that huge story I'm talking about, which all these little stories are part and parcel. If you go to Genesis 9, actually Genesis 6, We see the deterioration of things after the entrance of sin in verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. Isn't that a powerful passage? So the Lord said... I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth. I'm going to start over. But Noah found favor. And this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. This is an amazing story. The earth is portrayed as corrupt, full of violence, full of lust, full of evil. And amidst it all is a man who is blameless in his generation. It's an interesting qualification in his generation. I think if we read the story of the life of Noah, if we observed him day to day, we would be tempted to find fault with Noah in individual actions or individual places. We might note that 
post-flood, Noah is found drunk and passed out and has to be covered in his nakedness. And other things like that that we might cite and say, well, the guy wasn't perfect. But he believed God. That's a, that is a very powerful antidote to the problem we all face. He believed God and made an effort to follow him. Boy, in a world in which evil is running rampant, that is a potent piece. I'm going to tell you these stories rather than read them all because they're available to you to read, first of all. And even though my recitation won't be perfect, it's going to give you the theme and the idea and I can get to more of them than if I read. God instructs Noah to build a boat, a very particular kind of boat. It is a boat that will survive the elements. It's to be made of very hard wood. And it is a boat that will accommodate lots and lots of animals and people. It's a boat of unprecedented size. And scientists and creationists and people who have studied the text of Genesis and so forth have worked very hard, not always in agreement, to come up with an understanding of what the surface of the earth must have looked like at that time. Was there any kind of body of water anywhere that people would have known about sufficient for an ark of this size to float? Whatever the story, great rains are promised and eventually come 120 years later. The ark is built. Noah has been preaching. Noah has been mocked 120 years. That's a tough road to hoe, by the way. His family has joined him in the ark. The animals have come. The angel has sealed the door. The water's come. And then people decide they want to get on the boat. Isn't that, isn't that your story in some way? Have you ever been like that? That's my story in some ways. I'm so stupid that way sometimes. You know, you, it's right there. Do this, do this, do this, do this, and you're just saying, ah, yeah, whatever. And then all of a sudden you realize, hey, I should have done that about the time it's too late. What you going to do? If you were living then, you wouldn't be living. You would have drowned. The earth is washed clean in a flood. It is a cataclysmic event. And I'm not going to get into the various scientific uh, postulations about its global nature or global to the people of the area or those kind. We have evidence of flooding all over the globe. How this really shaped out, nobody knows for sure, as far as I can tell, except that God says it was going to happen and it happened. You have this incredible event that takes place. People surviving the story being so huge that it's present in the language of many cultures. You've all heard this before, many of you anyway. But the Chinese character for flood is a boat with eight mouths. That's the Bible story. You have flood stories in almost every ancient culture. So this cataclysmic event occurs that Noah is prepared for by the grace of God God has acted and saved a few. 
and that he can save any is miraculous. And at the end of the story, God remembers Noah and his family, sends a wind to dry up the water, they end up on the Mount Ararat and come down, and things have begun to start to sprout and grow. Life is different, irreparably different. The devastation is horrific. And a covenant is made. We read of this covenant in Genesis 9. Starting in verse 12. This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come, unconditional. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whatever, whenever I bring clouds across the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established between me and all life on earth. Now, this is a pre-scientific account Several weeks ago, I mentioned that when it comes to these stories, the writer of Genesis doesn't know about evaporation. There is earth or land, terra firma, if you will, and there is this firmament. And in the firmament, firmament are the heavens, the heavenly bodies. The birds of the air fly in it, and there are waters above that. And God controls these waters, sending clouds, sending rain. We understand these in scientific terms. For us to think of what this meant to the people who received this promise, it was enormous because what it said in, in this very simple, direct way was that since I control everything in your universe, since the processes you see are not understood naturalistically, they're understood supernaturalistically. That is to say they have a divine origin. I will control those in such a way that I will never, ever again destroy all life by a flood. When we see a rainbow, it isn't something we understand as God sent. It is beautiful. But we understand it to be a refractory process, right? The way light goes through a piece of a bit of mist or water and the splitting of the light that takes place as it does that and the angle you, at which you have to see a rainbow a rainbow can exist but it only exists on in one dimension you can only see it from a particular set of angles if you're on the side of it or in back of it it no longer exists God sets this though as his sign of a covenant now I'm getting to something that I hope you can understand the importance of. God doesn't have to do anything for anybody post-sin. We've made our bed and we can sleep in it, so to speak. When it comes to salvation, he doesn't, he's under no obligation to save anybody. Under no obligation. His character compels him. His love reaches out. His desire is 
oddly enough, to redeem this strange creation that have wandered so badly, fallen so far. But even post-terrible destruction, God speaks to humans in terms of promise. This is not going to happen to you ever again. And how do human beings respond? You know Bible stories. You know that they respond by saying, thank you for that promise. We're going to build a 3,000-foot tower and make sure that we can climb to a place where it will never happen again. Lovely speaking to you. And that is known as the Tower of Babel. Talk about a lot of brick. Construction began, and as the story goes, languages became confounded. People couldn't communicate, they couldn't agree, they couldn't get the job done, and they scattered to the corners of the world. Still mistrustful. Still not believing. Still not accepting the word of the one who made the promise. And so God tries again. Genesis 15. Actually, 12. I like these uh, little series of three chapters. There's so much there. Genesis 12 is the call of Abram. You notice that he's not Abraham yet. He'll be renamed this. God seems to be fond of renaming those that he lays claim to and naming them intentionally to reflect a growth in their lives. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to a land I will show you and I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and, make, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham left as the Lord told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 70, I said Abraham, didn't I? Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all of his possessions they had accumulated, and all the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Not a covenant yet, but a promise. Leave the comfort of home, leave the city you're a part of, wander to this new place, this, this, and, 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 and I will make you a great nation. Later, God will guarantee the land. He will promise the land to Abraham. But we have the seed of something very, very unique. We see here in chapter 9 of Genesis an intention on God's part to bless all of humanity. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? I don't know how you read that, but I get a little bit excited. On the one hand, it's like, well, why is God picking one guy to show this special favor to? You see, Abram, like Noah, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't, on the surface of things, a really big thing. And yet it was huge when you consider how often we don't believe God. How often our actions indicate we don't believe God and his word and his promise. 
Abram leaves his home. You notice that this is active, not passive. Noah builds the boat. It isn't that he just says, God, that's, thank you for sharing that. Really, a flood in, in a few years? Nice to know. And he doesn't go about his usual business with the candy shop or whatever it was he ran back then. Furniture manufacturing business. I don't know what Noah did. Doesn't say. He leaves what he's doing and he starts building the boat according to the plan God had given him. That's faith in action. That's belief in action. Abram hears this word from God and doesn't stay in Ur and say, well, if you can make me a great nation in Canaan, you can make me a great nation in Ur. How many wives do I need to take? He goes. He goes to the land spoken of. Chapter 12. Chapter 15. We get to covenant. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, verse 2, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring to me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them into two, and arranged them into halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river to the Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. How did I do with the ites? This is called a self-maledictory oath. It wasn't common, but it was done. These animals were sacrificed and split in two, and the intention of the oath was that if I fail to keep my word, 
this will happen to me. So when this torch, this light, passes between the halves, as it were, God is saying, if I fail in my promise to you, I too will be cut in half. That's pretty powerful. It's very human. It's in terms that Abraham clearly understood. God unconditionally promises that the land will be his and that he will be the father of a great nation. Backpacking this last weekend, I happened to be out under the stars as the rains cleared. We had rain for two nights. The third night, the stars came out. The planets came out. The satellites came out. The falling stars came out. You could look up and see the Milky Way. This story of Abraham being told to count the stars and that his descendants would be as the stars doesn't mean much in Los Angeles. Well, Lord, it looks like I'm going to have about 356 descendants. Most German families are bigger than that. Not much of a promise there. Or maybe a couple thousand, but when you get up to 11,000 feet at 2 in the morning and take a look at the heavens, you couldn't count the stars in a one-inch quadrant to the naked eye. There are gazillions of them. And this was the generosity of God's word. This is what I'm going to do for you. Stated to a man who had left his home at 75, now old and childless. And Abraham believed. He did say, how is this to happen? I'm getting old. But he believed. In fact, he and his wife believed so much, he took his wife's maidservant and had a child by her named Ishmael. And he believed that that would be the inheritor. And God said, no, there's to be another. And Sarai, Sarah bore Isaac, laughter. Covenant on its way. Isaac, by Rebekah bore Esau and Jacob and the older yielded to the younger and Jacob had twelve. The story goes on. When God speaks in covenant language he's doing something he doesn't have to do. He's entering our world, your world, my world and he's making a promise. And most of the time, the covenants ended with, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. I will protect you and take care of you, and you're going to keep the covenant by obeying my Sabbath and my commandments. There were conditions attached to a number of the covenant stories, and obviously we haven't had time to get to very many. The covenant stories go on in Scripture. Jeremiah 31, 31, though, begins the most important covenant story for us. So I'm going to take a minute on that one, if you'll indulge me, and let's look at Jeremiah 31, 31. There would be many references to covenant, and I ensure, I, I hope you'll pursue them all. 
But Jeremiah 31 says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was husband to them. This is referring to Exodus 19 to 24, where God makes a covenant with Israel in which the law is part of that covenant and keeping the law is part of that covenant. Verse 33, the covenant I will make with, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law not on stone or tables of stone, but I'm going to put it in their minds and I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'm going to internalize it in their very being. I will be their God and they will be my people. No conditions. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. So as surely as there is a creation, he says, this is what is. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done, declares the Lord. The days are coming when this city will be rebuilt for me from the Tower of Hannibal to the corner gate. The measuring line will stretch from there straight to the hill of Gareb and turn to Goesh the whole valley where the dead bodies and ashes are thrown, and all the terraces out to the Kidron Valley on the east, and as far as the corner of the horse gate, they will be holy to the Lord. The Lord will never again, the city will never again be uprooted or demolished. We look forward in the promises of God to a city. It's called the New Jerusalem. It's a place where this promise, this covenant is ultimately fulfilled. This covenant comes to you. It's not about legalism. It's not about conditions. It's God's desire for you to have the law internalized. Loving God supremely and your neighbor as yourself. It's about embracing the ethic and the life that Christ would embrace. It's about accepting the vision of a new Jerusalem and marching toward that eventuality. And along the way, Christ enters. And he doesn't talk a lot about covenant in his life. But as he's facing his death as the lamb that will take away the sin of the world, as he pours the Passover wine symbolic of the Passover blood, the redemption from Egypt, and now the redemption from sin. As he breaks the bread symbolic of the body, he says that, this is my body, this is my blood, this is the new covenant. 
I'm not going to eat or drink of this until we do so together in that new place, until all is redeemed and all is restored, until there's a time when nobody needs to be taught. Jesus has fulfilled these covenants. He fulfills this last one in the community that we share together. And the ultimate fulfillment of it comes in the earth made new. And so we remain people of promise. People God reaches out to, not because of our merit, our coolness, or our good looks, not because we deserve it, but because it is his heart to do so. And he makes promises. And he enters covenants. And he says, I'm going to redeem my people. And so, Lord, may we sing, Great is thy faithfulness, for you have reached out. You have offered us promise. You have entered relationship. And you have determined to save. Lead us, we pray.